you make a good point that that Democrats are upset and they want Republicans out of office. And I, I, I get that. I mean, I think I think a lot of people underestimated how upset a lot of Republicans were during the Obama years. Uh, I'm not likening the two presidents. I'm just making the case that it wasn't like we were thrilled for eight years. Upset then, over us proposing Republican ideas? What was, what was well, so upsetting? I mean, maybe maybe Republicans in the past had had those ideas, but you know, cap and trade was not popular on Capitol Hill or in America. There were a lot of things. Popular in China. That weren't. Well, so, <laughs> well, we're not China, right? How does political tribalism affect climate action? Are corporations doing enough to lead on climate in the absence of federal policy? What should we make of the Trump administration's freeze on fuel economy rules? And how does climate change get on the election agenda when there's just so much to discuss these days? This is our 10th episode of Political Climate, and we're still wrestling with a lot of questions, including why the heck are we trying to be bipartisan again? We tackled all these questions and more in a live podcast recording last week at the Sun Valley Forum in Ketchum, Idaho. And we're bringing you that conversation in this week's show. I'm Julia Piper, senior editor at Green Tech Media and host of Political Climate. And I was joined on stage in Ketchum by our Democrat and Republican co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbut, former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under President Obama, and Shane Skelton, former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. We were also joined by David Crane, the former CEO of NRG Energy. David has been outspoken on climate issues and U.S. politics since he was pushed out of NRG a few years ago for attempting to transform the large independent power producer into a major clean energy player. In this episode, David brings a pragmatic business person's perspective to the political climate conversation. Quickly, thank you to Amy Christensen and her team for inviting us to speak at the Sun Valley Forum. If you have a chance to go in future, I highly recommend it. There were several days of engaging discussions on how to create sustainable, equitable, and resilient economies and communities. Somewhat ironically, this year's forum took place as wildfires ripped through nearby fields and forests, which made for a smoky and kind of spooky landing in Idaho. Not to mention we flew in from California, which is in the midst of battling its own set of deadly wildfires. And the wildfires are where we begin this podcast. So we're here in Sun Valley, but the interesting thing is we flew from L.A. through the smoke. And for me, it was interesting because it was a real wake-up call to this new reality we're talking about of wildfires, of drought. And Shane, you didn't bring your children this week because of that. Can you just mention that briefly? Yeah, so we, you know, we were going to have a family trip. And um, yesterday, I guess two days ago, when we came out, I was calling whoever I could call uh, and catch them in and, and Sun Valley to try to get a sense of the air quality. And I got a wide range of feedback, but most of it was, you know, not good. And so we have a 10-month-old, we have a 5-year-old and a 3-year-old, and I just didn't want them them breathing in uh, that smoke. I think, I know you're going to going to get to this, but the um, it's interesting that when stuff impacts you personally, you pay a lot more attention to it. And so I really didn't care about climate issues at all until 2013 when Idaho burnt down. And similarly, I was coming out here with my family, and I at the time was responsible for um, the interior accounts on the budget committee working for uh, then budget chairman Ryan. And you know we were constantly fighting with the Obama administration about money, and I just didn't care, right? I mean, it was just, it wasn't a priority uh, for me, at least, and for my boss at the time. I shouldn't say didn't care. I mean, it, it wasn't a priority. It wasn't where you wanted to spend your money. And then you come out and you see how it's 
impacting people, you know, personally, but then also the community, and it becomes very, very real. So these issues are, are, are interesting, you know, from a, from a policy standpoint, but also from a personal perspective. Yeah, so we have a Republican who believes in climate change. Let's just let the record show. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like there's a bunch, Julie. <laughs> yeah, should we applaud? <laughs> there's an applause. All right, that might be the only one I get, so. But, you know, Julia, for the, for the Republicans that say dealing with climate change will be expensive, it's just a good example that we're already paying for it. I mean, what's the bill going to be for all these wildfires and hurricanes and such? Absolutely. So the temperatures are rising, wildfires are raging, drought conditions are spreading, storms are intensifying, and the midterm elections are less than 100 days away. So <laughs> it seems a little bit petty to talk about politics maybe in the midst of this crazy global transition and shift and a dangerous shift uh, that we're experiencing with climate change. But it's so key uh, how cities and states and the federal government, ultimately the planet, uh, the policies that, the, that all these entities put in place will affect how well we adapt and mitigate climate change. So the politics do matter and that's what we're trying to do with this podcast. So again, this is political climate. We share perspectives across the political spectrum on today's most pressing energy and environmental issues. And being bipartisan in today's world is actually kind of hard. I'm Canadian, so I'm nice to everybody. But, um, but seriously, there's a lot of anger out there. And we're trying to create a bipartisan conversation. But we also don't want to force it. We're not trying to pretend like things are all hunky-dory when they're not. So this episode, we're going to try and get at some of that tension. And to kick things off, I want to orient around this one article that came out in the New York Times. It was called, Actually, Republicans Do Believe in Climate Change. And Shane Skelton's our case in point. <laughs> this one. I'm not the only one. I know. I'm not the only one. <laughs> In this article, uh, social psychologists uh, Leif Van Boven and David Sherman outline a nas uh, some national surveys they conducted in 2014 and 2016 that found that most Republicans actually agree that climate change is happening and humans play a role and reducing carbon emissions would help mitigate the problem. Democrats agreed more, but the point is Republicans are mostly on board. So it raises the question, if Democrats and Republicans mostly agree about climate change, why do they disagree about climate policy? The research, which is published in the Perspectives on Psychological Science, found that the problem is not so much that Republicans are skeptical about climate change, but that Republicans are skeptical of Democrats, and that Democrats are skeptical of Republicans. And this tribalism leads to political fights over differences between the parties that either do not exist or are vastly exaggerated, according to this study, this research. So the study concluded the actual degree of political polarization on climate change is not the belief in climate change. The climate change policy gridlock is really about exaggerating disagreement for the sake of disagreement. The reason for optimism, they conclude, is that when Republicans put forward a climate policy, Republicans were on board and Democrats were more likely to get on board. So basically it concludes, Republicans are our only hope. Because when Democrats put something forward, the partisanship kicks in and nothing seems to get done. Okay, Brandon, you're a Democrat. Is there any way something's actually getting done with Republican leadership on climate change? Not right now. Um, I was having lunch with one of our listeners last week, and we were talking about how angry we are about what's going on in Washington, D.C., and she said to me, it's a question I get from, you know, some of my friends, uh, you know, how do you sit there with Shane and, 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 and do this? Um, and I thought I'd share my answer. So we have to solve this, right? And I think there's two options. One option is we do it in a bipartisan way with Republicans. I would love to do it. That is the most preferred option. It is the most durable option. I don't know if that's possible. But what I do know is that I'm not going to find out that answer by hanging 
just talking with my friends at the Venice Ale House. I wanted, I wanted to talk to Republicans about this, and Shane is my friend, and I really respect him and admire him, so uh, that's why we're doing this. Um, the other option, if the Republicans can't get their act together, is to just do it ourselves. Uh, that will be harder, um, but you know, I'm prepared to do that. We, I'm very active in the uh, midterm elections, trying to raise money for you know, Democratic candidates, um, and if that's the route we have to go, um, we don't then have a choice. And so the way I sort of think about it is sort of have two hands, right? One, my hand is outstretched, it's open, I wanna work with Republicans, uh, but the other hand is a fist. If they're not gonna get their act together, uh, then I'm prepared to go fight for it. Any quick response to that, Shane? <laughs> uh, I mean, I think you, you, you sort of articulated, I think, what the problem is, what the tension is, right, is that Republicans know that they're not getting support, that they're not, I, don't, I mean elected Republicans, I don't mean, you know, people like you and I who talk, um, they're not going to get support from people who care about climate, um, even the ones that are good on the issue, even the ones who are focused on deploying clean energy or some sort of carbon mitigation strategy, they're just not going to have a bunch of uh, environmental NGOs out there using their grassroots networks to elect Republicans. And so when you say, um, and I know we've had this conversation, but if the alternative is trying to force them out of office, they need allies, right? They need to find allies who, who want to help fund their campaigns while you're helping fund uh, Democrats. And that is the battle line. If you create, not you personally, if we create a scenario where Republicans have to sort of be against climate solutions because the alternative is to not get support from your primary constituency, but then also to get clobbered and thrown out of office, it, it's not really helpful. And as Julia mentioned in the study, I have one example, there was a, an amendment, it's a $10 million amendment, it wasn't a huge deal, that got passed to an appropriations bill uh, last year for energy storage. And it was introduced by a Republican, a guy named Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, wonderful guy. And, um, and that same amendment would not have passed. It just definitely would not have passed if a Democrat would have introduced the exact same text. There's just no way I think the Republican House would have approved additional spending for clean energy. So I think we know what the path looks like. We've got to find something that we can agree upon because when you do you know, the clean power plan or something through executive fiat, uh, it gets tied up in courts or someone else gets elected and we roll it back. So now we're 10 years away from cap and trade and we haven't done anything. I mean, we haven't done anything at all on this issue. You guys are in power. I mean, you can do that and I'm glad that the $10 million was passed. And I don't think Democrats care um, who gets the credit for this. If Republicans want to lead and own this issue and solve it, we'll go along for the ride. We just care about the outcome, but it's not happening and that's the problem. And it didn't happen when Democrats had control and tried to pass uh, carbon tax in 2008, 2009, or sorry, cap and trade rather. David, let's bring your voice in here. You have advanced the clean energy uh, industry and bring the business perspective. I know you also have a lot of thoughts about politics. So when you hear what these guys are saying about getting Republicans on board and even emboldening Republicans to do more, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, you know, I'm a victim of my own experience. I was there in the 2008-2009. I was part of a CEO of a company that was part of a group called the U.S. Climate Action Partnership. 28 major American corporations and five environmental groups, but big corporations like GE specifically existed to get climate legislation passed at the federal government. The Democrats had 59 senators, House majority, and a new president who during the campaign had said climate change was one of his three major issues. And we got annihilated. You know, there, you know, and, you know, the Democrats could sweep in in 2018 into the House and Senate. They could win, you know, Tom Steyer could get elected president in 2020, and it still wouldn't happen if we don't have Republicans. I'm not, I'm just saying that as a fact. 
And so what I would say is it needs to be republics. But I think that one of the things that an anecdote that I would share with you, which was very illustrious, uh, illuminating to me, was a few years ago, uh, as we all know, the military and the intelligence community are very good on this issue. Now, normally that would meant something with Republicans, but that doesn't, certainly the intelligence community means nothing to Trump Republicans, right? In fact, that's probably a bad sign, you know, that the intelligence community says this is... We should a, get Putin for it. Yeah, you know? yeah, this is a major issue. Yeah, Putin... Oh, well, geez, come uh, on, guys. Uh, well, at least Putin is still in the Paris Agreement. But anyway... Um, Zing. So... But, but the, uh, so I got invited a few years ago to the Naval War College to, to speak to some uh, high, you know, fast rising majors and colonels and Vice Secretary Mavis, Secretary of, of the Navy. And before we went on stage, they presented a little film. And, and basically what they had learned was when the Navy first said, we want climate change to be a big part of what we do, you know, the officers who, you know, trend conservative in terms of their political views in the, in the military, you know, had trouble with it. But then they recast it. They showed this little film and the Navy said, look, if, if we uh, use more renewables, then we can spread our fossil fuel further and our ships can, and can go out, uh, you know, further and stay longer. And so they had like these Marine Corps officers saying, like, I like the Navy's push for, you know, clean energy because it allows me to stay in theater longer and kill more bad guys. You know, and I'm like, well, that's an interesting argument for climate change. But, but if, that's what, if that's what floats the boat of a Marine Corps major, then I'm in for it. You know, yeah. and, uh, and there are a lot of ways where you can cast renewable energy in, in classic Republican terms, you know, uh, solarizing your roof, monetizing your private, your, it's private property. You know, you're getting out from under the thumb of an intrusive state monopoly in terms of the utilities. So, so the places where public policy has been most effective was when there was what some consider an unholy alliance between classic liberal environmentalists and the Tea Party. That's the sort of coalition that I think we need now. Uh, but more than anything, we need leadership that prioritizes this at a time when the, the country is just preoccupied with, a, with a, a bunch of other important, you know, policy issues and personality issues and things like that. And where and, I agree with the New York Times piece is the messenger does matter, and that's why we need more Shanes. And I want to figure out how to do that. For sure. Well, Trump did actually come out in support of solar on the border wall. So that's one way he might get behind it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the reality of it is the messaging is really hard, right? Like that's what we do for a living. I think that's a big part of what you do for a living. And it, it's really hard because it's really complicated. A lot of political issues can be boiled down to one or two sentences and you're either with us or you're against us. It's a very clear, you know, us against them. Climate, unlike other environmental issues, you can't see it. I mean, you can look at weather patterns, but it's not like, hey, I don't want that oil rig near you know, my beach. It's not something that you can point to and say, here's why we have a problem, let's sit down and, and solve it. You have to explain the science, you have to explain what's happening, why it matters, what could happen in the future, and how important it is to start addressing that, and that's really hard in politics. If you start explaining something, um, you're losing. You, you just, it's really, really difficult. Yeah, 
I want to talk about one specific race in Pennsylvania because it's a swing district and you have a very moderate Republican running there, Brian Fitzpatrick. Uh, he's the incumbent. He put forward a carbon tax last month along with uh, Representative Carlos Corbello. So you have two Republicans leading on climate change actually introducing some climate legislation. He's in a race against Democrat Scott Wallace uh, of the Wallace Global Fund, and they have been working to empower women, fight against climate change, and create clean jobs. So you have two candidates with strong clean energy and climate credentials, if you will. The Republican actually has one of the highest scores, if not the highest, on the League of Conservation's voters ranking system. So to the study, which said that Republicans might be able to get something moving on climate, in this time of partisanship, if you lose someone like Brian Fitzpatrick, the Republican, do you lose that leadership? And so should Democrats ironically be supporting the Republican in this race so that you keep the Republican leadership engaged on Capitol Hill? Because if the Democrat gets in, he'll surely be good on climate, but you won't have that Republican voice in the room. Brandon, what do you think? How do you think about that? I mean, absolutely not. I mean, we've talked about this. <laughs> you know, we've touched on it in the past. It's like, that's a highly targeted race. Uh, control of the house is going to come down to a district like that. And I mean, we're angry. I just see so much out there uh, where Republicans, it's a double standard. It's hypocritical. You know, they're supposed to be the party of national security, but you see all this stuff happening with Russia. They don't even want to look into it. I don't know what the, I don't know what the conclusion is, but, but not wanting to even explore it and look into it, I think is really dangerous. You know, on you know, Republicans are saying they're the party of states' rights. Look what happened with the cafe today. You know, we'll talk about it more in the show, but, you know, they want to take away California's waiver to have higher standards to have less air pollution. Um, so I don't understand that. You know, and we felt like in the Obama administration, we were proposing very moderate, almost Republican ideas to deal with this. We didn't start with a carbon tax. We didn't start with Medicare for all. We said, okay, let's compromise. Let's do Romney Care, which was Bob Dole's health care plan. Let's do cap and trade, which was George H.W. Bush's, you know, plan. And the Republicans wouldn't have anything to do with it. So that's why I'm skeptical that they're going to lead on this. Uh, and that's why people are angry. And you see, you know, what, what's going on out there. And I think we need to have, um, you know, democratic control of the House, and that's trumping right now uh, the climate policy. But anger doesn't solve problems, right? Anger helps win elections. And I think you make a good point that, that Democrats are upset and they want Republicans out of office, and I, I, I get that. I mean, I think, I think a lot of people underestimated how upset a lot of Republicans were during the Obama years. Uh, I'm not likening the two presidents. I'm just making the case that it wasn't like we were thrilled for eight years. Upset and then, over us proposing Republican ideas? What was, what was well, so upsetting? I mean, maybe maybe Republicans in the past had had those ideas, but you know, cap and trade was not popular on Capitol Hill or in America. There were a lot of things- Popular in China. That weren't, well, so, <laughs> well we're not China, right? But like the, the I, I think the reality of it is that if you're angry, you can remove people from office. You can get people to vote. You can mobilize, you can do all that. But then, you know, we're back here in 10 more years having this discussion. I had this conversation with one of our listeners the other day on the phone, and he said, yeah, but it's too urgent. It's too urgent to make, you know, to have corporations lead and make investments and efficiency, and we, we don't have time. And I said, sure, but if you and I would have spoken 10 years ago, you would have said the same thing. We haven't gotten anywhere because we didn't compromise. So had we gotten something done in 2009, we'd now be 10 years into our 30-year plan. Instead, we did absolutely nothing, and we're going to be here in 10 years, and we're going to have this conversation again because someone's going to be angry that someone else won an election. All right. Wow. <laughs> um, okay. Um, 
Well, so it kind of gets back to this issue of do you vote for your cause purely? Like, say, climate, if climate's your cause, then maybe you do vote for someone like Brian Fitzpatrick in that race if you do take the study's findings. Um, an interesting point on that, on cause versus politician, is the Kochs. Just this week, they announced they're no longer solely supporting Republicans, but they're going to focus on supporting their fossil fuel agenda. And that means that probably supporting some Democrats, too. Free trade is one of their biggest issues, but you could see it almost... I don't know, an interesting scenario where some Democrats maybe weaken their stance on climate because they're getting some Coke dollars. We don't know how it's going to play out, but it's interesting that they have chosen their causes over the political party. And it's led to this breakup with Trump in a very public way. Check out the tweets. Super entertaining. Um, <laughs> I guess, Shane, to you first, what, did, what do you think of the Cokes changing their strategy like that? I think they're really smart to do it. I think it goes back to what we were discussing a moment ago, where if you want to get issues dealt with, you've got to deal with the issues. And, you know, one, uh, I think it was Kevin Kramer, who's running for um, Senate in North Dakota, that what spurred this with the Kochs was that apparently in a, in a meeting of House Republicans, uh, he said to someone, don't worry about the Kochs, they're going to fund us anyway, if you're a Republican. And they resonated with them. And their view was, well, we shouldn't be a rubber stamp. We're always saying next cycle, next cycle. If we care about certain issues, we should invest in those issues. So I don't share their views on a lot of issues. I do on some. But I think it's smart to say uh, fundraising is very, very, very hard. It's very difficult, and it's very time-consuming, and it's what politicians spend most of their time doing. So if you can find an ally who wants to help you fundraise and give you money because you support their issues, um, it's going to be an effective tool. And, and I think it's, it's the right way to go. And what I think is people who want climate action should be doing similar things. They should say, hey, we're participating like we always do, but we're not going to blindly elect either party. We are going to make it appropriate. We're going to make it... Um, we're going to make it fun to be pro-climate. It's not going to be something that you get beat up on in the campaign trail. You're going to be running on this stuff. And I, and I wish Democrats, or at least uh, you know, liberal-leaning donors, would do that. Yeah, to be clear, the Kochs are anti-climate action. We're using this as more of the principle of the cause versus the politician and the political group you support. But yeah, let's just, for the record, not conflate the two things of uh, Kochs and acting on climate. It's going to be interesting, you know, the impact on the midterm elections, because there's going to be some candidates now that, they, that they're not going to fund. Uh, the, the Senate race in Indiana is really important to who's going to control the Senate, and it looks like they're not going to support the Republican you know, candidate uh, for Senate in Indiana. And by the way, for our listeners uh, listening to the show, they know that Shane and I have a big bet on Texas, uh, and, a, and a recent poll came out that showed my man Beto, he's making moves, six points uh, is that poll, and another one was two points. Uh, so Shane spotted me seven points, so uh, I'm looking pretty good, but I, I think Beto's got a chance to win the whole thing. Yeah, I spotted him seven, and I thought I was walking. You know, I, I didn't even think about it. I was just trying to pick out where he, so the bet was that you have to take the other person to dinner anywhere they want. They and Julia gets to come no matter what. Pay. Yeah, and Julia gets to come. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I'm going to, like, pick the nicest restaurant in L.A., and Brennan has to buy me dinner. Why would he do that? And now I'm seeing these polls, and I'm not, I'm not feeling as, as great as I did. The blue wave is coming. Uh, to be clear, that's Beto O'Rourke up against uh, Ted Cruz in Texas. Um, Shane, you mentioned the corporate influence and... Um, that that would maybe not be acting fast enough. We've talked on, on previous episodes about the role of corporations in advancing climate change and clean energy policy. David, you interact with that community a lot. Is what corporations are doing to tackle climate change enough? Do you think of it as being sufficient in the meantime, or is it just one step? And, and then the follow-up is, what do you think the corporation's role is in the political world? Do you think they could have a bigger impact there? Well, I, I think there's a, I mean, for the most part, and to answer your last question first, I think it would be better if there was a lot less money, you know, in politics uh, than there was. So, 
But I mean, I think, I mean, I, you you had presented the previous question is you vote for policy versus per personality. Uh, and I actually think there's a third category that rises to the surface uh, this time. I, I don't want to sound too sappy about, it, but it's, it's 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 about core values, and and who are we as a people, and who best uh, reflects us. The, I mean, the the traditional Republican Party and the Democratic Party you know, in the post-war era, they, they both reflected, I think, American core values. I, I personally don't feel that Trump Republicanism re reflects who, at least who I am. And I mentioned this in answer to your question about corporate core values, because the thing, one of the things I was, uh, you know, proudest about, you know, our company was spread all over the place. We had 11,000 employees, but every single employee at NRG, you know, uh, you know, we all have a set of core values, and to make it easy, you know, it's a, it's an acronym. You know, strive, safety, teamwork, respect, integrity, you know, uh, value creation, exemplary leadership. I had to work on the E because I, if you put it as an L, it sounded like strivel, which wasn't <laughs> best. So, um, and uh, what you see now, and I, I think almost every big corporation has embraced this idea that their soul is a set of core values, and, and one thing or another that the Trump administration has done has offended those values, and so you see the CEO uh, group disbanding and things like that. And I think it's it's the probably the biggest setback to the climate change movement is not actually that Trump pulled the United States out of Paris, but beca but it's just climate change has been lost in the debate of worrying every day about what Trump tr tweeted that morning. There's no discussion about what our obligations are. And only the most committed CEOs want to stand up right now and say, my company fundamentally believes uh, in X when he, when he or she knows that X is something that, that the Trump administration and the, the, the laughably identified environmental protection uh, you know, agency at this point, uh, you, know, what it stand, you know, what it stands for. And so I think that's the big loss because buying power, if I sent a speech last year, if I could have one job right now, I'd like the 100 largest corporations in the world in terms of energy consumption to aggregate their energy demand and give it to me and then let me go around and source that uh, because, you know, suppliers, we live in a world right now of energy surplus, which we, we, we didn't through the 70s, 80s, 90s. And, and the buyers have all the purchasing power in the world. And if they got together and said to the utilities, the power companies, the oil and gas companies, you know, I want, I'll buy energy from you, but it can't be associated with carbon going into the atmosphere. So you, you figure it out. Uh, that would change behavior much more quickly. And, you know, right now, you know, for every Unilever out there that's conveying that message, we will not do business in any kind, we will not buy electricity from anybody, you know, unless we're sure it's carbon free, you know, by the year 2030. So you got 13 years to figure it out. You know, for every one of there, there's, you know, 50 companies that are sitting on the sidelines. And so I think that's really an important thing. Interesting. 
One company we've actually seen play a role in climate policy, oddly enough, is Exxon. <laughs> they have come out backing, I mentioned the carbon tax earlier, and there are two other Republican-led, or um, bipartisan at least, efforts to pass a carbon tax that all have happened in, in this year, in recent months. So it's kind of interesting. There's some momentum building around that. The Climate Leadership Council is one of the groups. Americans for Carbon Dividends is the other, and then I mentioned the carbon bill. Exxon has supported these policies. A lot of oil companies have. And so in some ways, like, okay, great. The oil industry is getting on board with climate action even. Wow. And then you kind of look at some of the language, and two of those proposals, not the bill, but the other proposals, it would actually provide liability protection for fossil fuel companies for any carbon emission-related claims. So they would be off the hook for any future lawsuits related to climate change but they would, they would have to pay a carbon tax. But of course, they're maybe influencing how high or low that carbon tax would be. So you have these kind of conflicting things, maybe if you're a Democrat, because you're thinking, okay, carbon tax is good, finally. Let's get a step forward, great. But if that rider is kind of in there, are you maybe putting yourself in a corner where you can't take legal action against fossil fuel companies in future? Shane, I know you've thought about this a little bit. Does it undermine the Republican effort, the fact that oil companies are also backing this, or no? I think yes and no. I think... Um you can't, you know, the way that, that, that someone wants to do this, right, is that you put a tax on carbon that's affordable and then you can socialize the cost because you can pass that through to your, you know, millions of consumers. So they get that. Whereas if you get sued and are held liable for some, you know, insane amount of money for, for you know, climate damage, um, how do you deal with that? That's a huge corporate risk. So I get why they're doing it. I think... Um, for Republicans, it's tough because what you don't want to do is, is get muddled up in, in an effort like this that I think is more insincere than anything. I think you can't give a company, any company, for any reason, just liability uh, waiver for, for anything. I, I just don't think that makes a ton of sense. And so I, I, I think the details are probably you know not good. They're not where they need to be. I think what it does do, though, is most people don't read the details. So to the extent that you get Republican circles talking about a climate solution, um, you get big companies sort of talking about this casually. I actually think that will help normalize it quite a bit over the next few years. So I don't think Exxon's proposal is going to win the day. But I do think that when Republicans, just like Democrats and everyone else, talk about this issue casually all the time with corporate um, interests and with their voters, then you know, you've normalized it. Now, just like any other issue, you can act on it. Brandon, I know you were starting to read that huge 30,000-word New York Times magazine special all about climate change. It actually just came out, and it goes into a lot of the detail of where we got off track. Like 30 years ago, Republicans and Democrats were actually all on board with climate action. So I'm tell us more about Yeah, I'm embarrassed that I haven't finished it. I was actually too busy beating Shane at bowling last night, and there's a shuffleboard out there. I was beating him at that as well, so I didn't get to finish the uh, article. Um, but... It's fascinating. I highly recommend everybody uh, read it. And I've gotten to this point where Exxon was about to go all in uh, on renewables and solar, and I don't know what happened. And I think that can be something that this show does, is for you know Shane and I to put our heads together and figure out how do we get back to where we were, which I didn't realize in the you know, late 70s and early 80s, there was a lot more consensus um, and uh, sort of a more unified approach to this. And how did this go off the rails, um, and how do, we get, how do we get this back on track? It became political, right? I mean, it... it when, when the clip that you sent me, and I'll admit that's all I read of that article, was that, um, that they said, we're going to own this new energy model of the future. That was, a corp that was an opportunity, an investment opportunity to own a market that was going to grow. Um, and now, I mean, climate is, is a lot more, I think, uh, more often mentioned 
in political discourse, not policy discourse. People use it as a bludgeon to, to beat up their opponents. And so um, it's really hard for companies to get involved in an issue that's very politically sensitive. Um, and, and clearly they're not for whatever reason. Yeah, and one of my takeaways from the, you know, being three-fourths of the way through the article is, I mean, I didn't realize that uh, even before I was born, there was a CIA classified report that said, you know, climate change is a huge deal and the impacts you know, on our society and uh, economy are almost incomprehensible. Uh, so we've, no we've been thinking about this, scientists have been on this for decades and we've st we're still stuck. Um, and that's why you know, David and I were sort of debating this about Democrats uh, before you know, we got on the, on the show today. I'm excited about women like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who just won that race in New York. You know, she's she's bold. She's got the guts to say this is what we need to do. And we've been messing around for a couple of decades. And I'm like, let's give Alexandria a chance. I'm all for that. David, what were your thoughts uh, about Alexandria or, or anything we've just said? No, I have no thoughts on Alexandria. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but the no, but to the the point about Exxon. I mean, I mean, I was uh, CEO from about 2001 to 2015, and. One of the things that you noticed during that period was how much issues that normally are in the should be in the government domain suddenly get put on big corporations because uh, implicit, you know, second to the military, like big corporations are are actually seen as problem solving, you know, apolitical organizations. And so whether it's you know basic education in America, you see all these CEOs starting to you know intervene. And fortunately as opposed to when I started in 2000, which was sort of the transition out of the era of you know, command and control, uh, rule by fear CEOs to the nurturing CEO model, which we have now, most CEOs were actually inclined to care about issues uh, more than just the, their company's bottom line. So, so what I see with Exxon, and I don't wanna cast aspersions on Exxon, but I, first of all, I'm not a big believer. I, I don't think a carbon tax works. I know that people say it'll work. I, I'm, a, I'm an old school cap and trade uh, guy. It worked for Sox, it worked for Knox. I don't know why it can't work. Uh, uh, I mean, a carbon tax, they will, they will misprice it and it won't affect the, the if they did it. And initially, like when Republicans start proposing carbon tax, my first thing is most Republicans won't vote for anything that has the word tax in it. So they're just trying to pretend like they uh, are in favor and they're not. And initially when Exxon came out in front of a carbon tax, I actually attributed that to them, that they were in favor of it because they knew it would never pass. But, but the second thing I'd say about Exxon is, is and, and I, I'm not saying they're doing this, but you'll see that I actually am saying that they're doing this, is that we have to be very careful about greenwashing. Because if you look at the uh, PR campaign, the advertising campaign that Exxon put on during the last Olympics, they spent something like 40 million to show how they were you know, using algae to capture carbon on. Well, we did an algae experiment at you know, NRG, and it's terrible. I mean, it's a nice theoretical idea, but it's not gonna happen. I could tell you why some other time. But, uh, but at the same time that they were spending 40 million trying to you know, let everyone in the room think how green they are, their CEO at the time, uh, Rex, actually went and said, look, algae's not happening. You know, it's five to 10 years from even being close to demonstration stage. 
while his advertising people are saying, hey, look at what all we're doing in algae. So we have to be worried about people wrapping themselves in this green cocoon uh, and, and not doing anything. And then the big issue, the biggest issue for all the major oil companies is they have no place to go. When I, when I got fired for trying to make the transition of NRG from brown to green, one of the CEOs of the very, very largest oil companies you know, called me up and said, look, look what happened to you. He said, we are 40, you could never make your renewable business matter to investors relative to the size of your conventional business. And, and, and then you got fired. Our company is 40 times larger than yours. He's, if we concluded that a software program to make your house energy efficient was the future and went to the marketplace and said, this is what we're going to do, the investors would say to us, go back to, no, you, if we want a software company, we'll invest in Microsoft or something. You know, go back to punching holes in the earth until we decide that, you know, we're not going to hold your stock anymore. So they, they have a big issue that's hard for them to overcome. Okay, I want to pivot in uh, our remaining few minutes here to talk about the corporate average fuel economy standards. These are the the rules the Obama administration put in place to make cars more efficient. They were targeting to get to 54 miles per gallon, roughly a doubling of fuel economy by 2025. Just today, the Trump administration released their proposal that would freeze those standards at about 37 miles per gallon at 2021 and no longer get up to that 54 MPG. They would also revoke this legal waiver that California has granted and is also followed by 13 other states uh, that allows them to put more stringent pollution uh, standards in place for cars. So this is big controversy. You totally have a huge climate impact, obviously. Getting more efficient cars on the road has a direct and a large impact on greenhouse gas emissions. So I guess this kind of example is, I think, one where it's so hard for Democrats to get on board with anything Republican, White House, Congress, whatever, because it just seems like the whole strategy is to block and undo, block and undo. We have yet to see them actually step up with anything of value. And I think this is one of those examples. Well said, Julia. Tax reform. <laughs> okay, Brandon. Who's going to overlook that? What do you make of the cafe standard situation? I mean, this is something that we were really proud of. I was in the White House the first year. I was there. This is what leadership looks like. You know, the president uh, and his chief of staff at the time, Rahm Emanuel, they got the automakers, uh, the EPA, the Department of Transportation, in the Roosevelt Room. They said, you know, get a deal. Get this done. Nobody's leaving until we get something done. And the guy who's supposed to be the art of the deal, uh, you know, is flailing at this. Uh, and... You know, I don't know who supports this. The automakers are saying that they don't want this, um, and the people don't want it. So I don't understand why they're doing this. It just seems silly. They, they got, as you know, and I don't know if you'll admit, uh, they got dealt a bad hand. I think there's no reason to roll this rule back without any sort of thoughtful replacement. I know we've talked about there's a number of ways you could reduce emissions from the auto sector that are really thoughtful, and you could you could partner, like you said, you could partner with... Um, innovators and try to find a good rule that that minimizes cost to consumers and, and helps encourage new technologies. But you know, with the cafe standards, what often uh, is not mentioned when I talk to um, to uh, uh, people on on your side of the aisle is that there was supposed to be a midterm review. There's always a midterm review, and they were going to go. You know, you go back in, you see if the standards that you set were achievable. If they're going to continue to be achievable for the next five years, and when they expected that Hillary Clinton was going to win the election, they you know, weren't worried about it. They could do the review and take as much time as they needed. Then right after Donald Trump won the election, they just went through and said, yep, we reviewed it, it's good, we're done. Uh, and they didn't do the work. 
and so they, you know, they could have been more honest about where we were heading with CAFE, and I think states like California would have been more willing to have discussions with the Obama administration than they're going to be with the Trump administration. I think it's important to note, too, there was some internal battles within the Trump administration. As we understand from some reporting, Andrew Wheeler, the current head of the EPA, was seeing a pathway to keep the standards in place, perhaps for legal reasons, or just thought it'd be less messy than getting into this legal battle with California. And the DOT, Department of Transportation, also weighs in, and they were more gung-ho for putting the stall in place. So it's interesting to note that even within the Trump administration, not everyone's necessarily in lockstep. We don't know the details, but that is what we're, we're learning. So, Shane, are you worried that um, if we don't... The Chinese are moving super aggressively to electrification. You know, they're going to ban you know, internal combustible engine vehicles. Um, and we're, you know, pulling back on CAFE now. Are we going to lose this market to the Chinese? Are we going to have to bail out the automakers again then? Well, that, that's why I say I, I want solutions. Because I'm, I'm, as you know, very much with you on electrification. So I'm not upset that they're not going to keep the current CAFE rules in place. I just wish they would have taken an affirmative policy step to do something like that. I think electrification, and we'll talk about this in a future episode, we always talk about what we don't like on the podcast, but we're going to do an episode where we actually introduce ideas. We can hold ourselves accountable for talking about what good changes could be made. What should Republicans and Democrats be doing? So we can talk a lot about electrification then. But yeah, I am worried about it. I'm worried that no one is seemingly putting, a, you know, David made a good point earlier, that there doesn't seem to be a big plan where these, you know, rules and regulations are steps towards that plan. So I think it would make sense to say, what's our goal here as a policy, whether it's in the transportation sector or, you know, environmentally or energy-wise, and then start using these rulemakings to, to walk closer to, to achieving that plan. And I, I just don't know what the plan is right now. David, what's our plan? <laughs> well, but think forward to, to 2020, future elections. How do we get something happening here? Well, just, uh, I'm sorry, I like where Shane was going with this. I mean, the, this cafe thing today is just smacks of just yet another, well, I'm just going to do it because Obama did it, which is, you know, that to me, having spent some time in the British parliamentary system, you know, Tories come in, they undo what Labor did. Labor comes in, they undo what Tories. We, we like to think as a country we're building on something, and it's... The, if, if they had come in and said, well, we're getting rid of the cafe standards because it's better for the environment, it's better for everyone if we, this vision of an automated shared service transportation future where there are 50 million cars on the roads of America rather than 300 million, that would be much better for the environment and local air quality than just getting going to 54 miles. Then at least you could, okay, so there's a plan. There's something uh, tied to that. And, but th there's no plan here. There's just undoing what Obama did. So... I think one of the most important things right now, I mean, this election is important, but is I'm very focused on the idea that 2020 uh, presidential election, climate change has to be on the agenda. And the problem with Democrats is that, that Democrat candidates, they all believe in the same things and they're, and they're all the right good things that they believe in. And so since climate change doesn't poll well with the population, it never gets addressed. It wasn't addressed with... Hillary versus uh, you know Bernie because they they had the exact same position and climate change was number twelve on you know the issue list and so what I'd like to see happen I'd like to see all these environmental groups that are energized and angry is get behind an overtly climate change candidate uh, so that at least so when you know every presidential candidate should always be asked the question why are you running for president it'd be nice if someone answered. I'm running the president because climate change is the transcendent issue of our time. 
in the last four years. And I, I'm not running as much against Trump Pence as I'm running against Trump Pruitt Wheeler. And right now, I mean, I, I don't know who that candidate is. I mean, you know, they'll, they'll be 30 people. The perfect world would actually be if Bloomberg challenged Trump on the Republican side, and then there was a, a real climate change candidate on the Democrat side. So at least we got the issue back on the table because we've suffered for two years now of the issue just being wiped off uh, the table. A lot of people, though, really, really quick, I'll be very quick, but a lot of people are, are happy with Wheeler. I'm one of them, but I mean, it, I mean in two, it's been like two weeks. Well, that, that's my point, though. But, but, so, no, no, no. That, that I mean, is well, my compared point, to Pruitt, maybe the worst, the worst public servant in the history but, of the United but, States. But you said, run, I mean, straight run out of the Warren Wheeler. G. Harding administration. So run against Wheeler. I'm, I'm saying he's he's doing things that people like, even on the left already. Um, now it's early, but he's posting his calendar online. He didn't go forward with that glider rule. I mean. You know, uh, my point is, how are we running against him? We don't, what, what has he done so far? What kind of mattresses does he like? <laughs> I, we'll never know, luckily, right? Because he's going to he's going to run the administration or, or the uh, EPA, I think, effectively. But um, yeah, I just think it's too early to say we got to run against him, right? Well, I mean, I got to admit, in the same way that you like the the young candidate from Queens because you think uh, she'll galvanize the uh, Republican base, I was really disappointed when Pruitt. Uh, resigned because I thought, man, he's he's just so evil. We 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 need that guy to last at least until November, so that uh, <laughs> we are running out of time. He'll so be we... alive in all the campaign ads. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, I hope, hopefully, you know. All right, I'm going to jump in. The way we end each show uh, is to have each of our co-hosts say something nice about the opposing political party. So very briefly, <laughs> Shane, what do you got? Uh, Governor Jerry Brown, um, wildfires are a huge issue here, uh, but also in California, and it's, it's going to be a mess trying to figure out how to sort all this out, but, but I think these utilities are going to be critical in California's clean energy plans, and so I think the fact that Governor Brown is spending political capital when he's on his way out the door to try to broker some sort of a durable fix to, to wildfire funding uh, but I think what liability funding, I'm sorry, but I think what will also happen is utilities will, will come out of this stronger and they'll be able to deploy more clean energy and address some of the underlying climate issues. So I just think it's really cool that he could, he could phone it in for his last few months, but he's working hard to get this done by the end of the month, which is when it needs to get done by. Definitely controversial, but we'll have to save that for another episode is what exactly to do about the wildfires and the role of the utilities. Brandon, close us out here. So in the White House, there's an office called uh, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, OSTP. Uh, and the head of that office is basically the president's top uh, science advisor. Uh, under Obama, uh, there's a Dr. John Holdren. He was terrific. So Trump just nominated somebody uh, to head the OSTP office, so it'll be his top science advisor. And the gentleman's name is Kelvin Drogmeyer, and he's actually been uh, outspoken about support for climate research and support for you know climate programs. So this is a good sign. So somebody that's in there advising Trump uh, who believes in climate change is a step in the right direction. Great. All right, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of Political Climate. I'm Julia Piper, Brandon Hurlbut, Shane Skelton. Thank you so much, David Crane, for, for joining us this episode. And thank you guys for listening. Until next time. Yes, thank you, David. <laughs> Thank you. We have a rowdy crowd in Sun Valley. Who knew?